0: Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and Tavia and I were talking about really long books that we've read. And I think one of the most recent really long books I read was a horror novel by Joe Hill called Nosferatu. I think it was like over 600 pages.
1: I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and the, one of the longest books that I've ever read is The Lost by Daniel Mendelssohn. And same thing. I, I, you know, I didn't realize how long this book was, but it's this memoir about a man searching for what happened to his Jewish ancestors in World War II. It's so powerful and so riveting. I, it just flew by. That sounds amazing. I'm adding that to my
0: list of books to read. Um, On today's show, four women wage war against Hitler in Nazi Berlin. We'll be talking about the historical saga, Resistance Women. We think it will be a great addition to your book club. And later in the show, we'll be joined by New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Chiaverini.
1: But first, we wanted to share this fantastic review of the podcast from I. Mike Lindgren, who says... This new podcast has a loose fun vibe, but it's also really smart and perceptive. The hosts have an easy natural rapport with this author, and I expect more good entries. Especially excited to hear Lou Burney, who is a rising thriller star. Keep up the good work. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. What a sweetheart. Thank you, Mike, for listening. Thank you so much. Just a reminder to all our listeners, if you post a review of our podcast, there's a very good chance we'll read your critique on the show as well send us your feedback post your reviews and now we present to you resistance women abridged
0: set in the years before and during world war ii resistance women reimagines the lives of mildred harnack and her circle of brilliant and brave female friends greta lork martha dodd and sarah whites who sacrificed their own lives to fight injustice Mildred accompanies her academic husband to his German homeland to pursue her doctoral studies in American literature. Greta is an aspiring author who returns home to Germany after studying at the University of Wisconsin. Martha is the naive daughter of the American ambassador to Germany, and Sarah is a Jewish student of American literature who is forced to rethink her plans for marriage after discovering the anti-Semitism lurking in the hearts of complacent Germans. Together, these four women find themselves drawn into an underground resistance cell, risking their lives and gathering information to destroy the Third Reich. This fictionalized version of real-life heroes is a complex tale of the courage of ordinary people. So, Tavia, what did you think of the book?
1: The first thing that I have to talk about is how I just marvel at these characters' courage and principled actions. I am just so impressed that these were real-life people. I was reading this book and I found myself wondering would I join the resistance if I was in their situation would I just live my life and you know not do anything or or would I you know sort of join the crowd like who, what would I have done in their shoes and yeah and it's you know I feel like that's one of the reasons why this book is so perfect for book clubs cause yeah you could just sort of talk about that that one question all night long yeah for me m- with this book more than
0: any other book I've read I was really able to see myself in these, like, because Jennifer Chiaverini writes in a chronological way, so it's, like, it starts in 1928 or 1929 and goes through the end of World War II mm-hmm. and yeah. continues on, and, but it's chronological and it's day by day, and you can really f- feel the everyday nature of how slowly things happen. You know, it wasn't all at once. It was very gradual, the rise of the Nazi regime, and I think being able to see the detailed lives of these characters and, and um, think about, you know, what would I have done as these things were happening? Um, like
1: you said, you could talk about it forever. You know, you mentioned the chronological approach to the book. And, you know, I enjoyed that because I've read a bunch about World War II, but I've read about a moment here, mm-hmm. a moment there, about one thing that happened. You know, I've seen the movie Dunkirk. And, yeah. You know, all these, the book thief. And I remember when I read everything is illuminated and Three Days at the Brink by Brett Baer. Like, these books all coalesce in this novel because she strings all of those events together, and you can see how this strand of beads just grew, sort of, like you said, day by day and month by month.
0: Yeah, and I liked it, too, because you could sort of you could really build the context around what was happening in the world at this time. So like obviously 1929 is like when the stock market crashed and the start of Great Depression and sort of thinking about how that factored into what was going on in Europe during the 1930s. And um, I loved the chronological detailed approach to writing this book because you could see both the the intimate lives of the characters and as well as sort of the big picture context. Um, and the other thing that I loved about these characters. Are you going to talk about the nerd factor? I'm going to talk about the nerd factor. Yes. How did you I know? know. <laughs> <laughs> they're all bookish. They're all these women are like scholars and academics and writers and they love to read and they're students of literature. Oh, I love that. It was so great. They're sort of like a book club. <laughs> two, of, two of them even write like book reviews together it's true That's um, right. but i loved that and that was really fun um to see how these women sort of bonded and and their shared values and their shared experiences sort of tied around literature definitely the nerd factor
1: <laughs> oh my gosh i cannot wait to talk to the author about me this. too this is going to be great one quick reminder we love hearing from you our listeners Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and post your own questions to the authors who appear on the show. You can find us at facebook.com groups slash the book club girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the Resistance Women audiobook.
0: Today, we are joined by Jennifer Chiaverini, whose book
1: Resistance Women is out now. Welcome, Jennifer, to the Book Club Girl podcast. We're
2: so happy to have you here. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you.
1: So we are so excited to talk about Resistance Women, which is based on the lives of actual women working against Hitler during World War II. One thing our listeners are wondering about is how did you come across Mildred, Greta, Martha, and the others?
2: It's actually the first, the idea first came to me quite a few years ago. Um, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and one day I came across a post- on social media from the Wisconsin Humanities Council. And it was a black and white photo of a smiling blonde woman bundled up in a warm coat, and she was standing before this cluster of evergreen trees. And she just had this lovely, gentle smile and this warm expression on her face, where she just looked like she would be someone you would want to talk talk literature with or have a nice (laughs) cup of tea with and talk about world events and what's going on in your life. So I was drawn to that lovely photo. But then I read the caption and it said, September 16th is Mildred Harnack Day, the day Wisconsin remembers the Milwaukee woman who holds the tragic claim as the only American woman executed on direct orders of Adolf Hitler. Wow. wow. I just got the chills. I know, me too. When you said and that. I <laughs> did too. And that was my response when I read this. I mean, the contrast between those grim words and Mildred's lovely, gentle smile just captured my imagination. So I had to learn more. I mean, what a teaser, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I had to find out more. I mean, how did this woman who was a a Milwaukee native. She went to the UW-Wisconsin and, you know, a lot of the places where she lived and worked were places that I know very well from living here. How did she end up, you know, going from being a graduate student and teacher of literature at the UW-Madison to being in Berlin during the rise of fascism and ending up on Hitler's enemies list. Well, once I heard that, my imagination was immediately captured, and I had to do a lot more research to find out who Mildred was and how her life took this unexpected turn. I have to
1: admit, of all the women, my favorite was Mildred. Her love for her husband, her bravery, she was so smart, and she also loved Germany. All of these characteristics really endeared her to me. Do you have a favorite resistance woman that you, you know, wrote about?
2: Oh, Mildred is very special to me, too. Um, They are all special to me, and I adore them all for different reasons. They're all so important, not only to my novel, but also, of course, to the resistance activities, that it's hard for me to say one is more important than the other. But, of course, Mildred, I feel a a strong kinship with her because of her, the times that she has spent here in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, her love for literature. I used to teach English literature at the college level, and so did she. And so many of her favorite places here in Madison are, are some of my favorite places. She loved to walk around the UW Arboretum with her husband. And that's one of my favorite places to walk with my husband. <laughs> Bascom Hill is a place that I see very often. And so I do feel uh, a special kinship with her um, because of her connection to Madison. All four of the, the
0: main characters, the main women in the novel, are to, to various degrees, scholars of literature or writers themselves. And so I was curious if you think their academic and creative interests might have made these women more likely to resist the Nazi ideology. That's a
2: really interesting question. Um, you know, I think it, it very well may have, because if you are a engaged reader, if you are a thoughtful reader, you learn to, by understanding the lives of fictional characters and nonfictional characters as well, you are attuned to exploring perspectives other than your own. Yeah. You are actively engaged in understanding the lives of other people and being a critical thinker. And learning about complex issues and lives very different from your own. And I believe that both being a reader and being a writer helps to develop one's empathy. So if you can develop empathy for characters who are very different from yourself, then I think that that makes you more empathetic with actual human beings in your daily life and far less willing to stand by and look the other way when they are being unjustly persecuted or when great injustices are happening in the society around you. But I think it's the, the values and the insight that they developed by being engaged readers and writers that made them see the changes that were happening in Berlin and in Germany that made them see that this was something that could not be allowed to endure, and something they had to fight against.
1: I can totally see that,
2: Jennifer. I have a question for you about the structure of the books.
0: Tavia and I have read a few World War II novels recently, and so many of them we've found have moved, you know, jump back and forth through time with using flashbacks or flash forwards. And but you've written Resistance Women totally chronologically albeit from from the perspectives of the different characters. And Tavi and I both loved that structure, and we were wondering why you chose
2: it. I wanted to show the steady, insidious, and relentless rise of the Nazi movement because I I don't think a lot of American readers um, are perhaps uh, as aware of that. I mean, uh, uh, for a lot of Americans, unfortunately, I think our understanding of the war really begins perhaps in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. Or for some people, they might even think the war really essentially began for America when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. But there was so much more to it than when the Americans became actively involved. And I wanted to show how Hitler didn't just come on the scene instantaneously at one pivotal moment and seize control by force, but it was a steady, very planned, very well-orchestrated movement to slowly and relentlessly acquire power and consolidate control. And there were so many places along the way where he could have been curtailed.
1: The way that you built the narrative, I definitely got that impression, and it was overwhelming. And this conversation ties in so nicely to um, our next question. We actually got a call-in question from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Katie, and uh, I have a question for Jennifer.
3: I read a lot about World War II and still felt that I learned so much
1: about how exactly Hitler's rise to power happened in Germany and what it was like to watch
2: the regime slowly build and
1: take away liberties.
2: What was the most surprising thing you uncovered in
1: your research of the pre-World War II days in Germany?
2: I think the most surprising thing for me was how there were so many signs along the way that things were going terribly wrong. And we have, a lot of us have this assumption that all of the German people were 100% behind Hitler. And it surprised me to read that at one point before Hitler had completely gained control, there was an enormous protest, 200,000 Germans strong, protesting against giving Hitler the presidency or putting him in charge of more than he already was in control of. Because I was completely unaware of that. And that is a sizable, that is a very big protest. And I think that that made me wonder what happened to those 200,000 people that were there at the outset and were willing to fight back and were making their objections known, but then, of course, so much violence came into play later that if you protested, if you even forgot to give the Nazi salute, you could be shot on the spot. So, of course, at that point, those kind of large scale protests simply weren't possible. I remember that
1: 200,000 protests really surprising me when I read that, too. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that there were that many people who were against it. But then reading the novel, you see...
0: You know, how the strategy was to target who like who made up those 200,000
2: people, like what groups and then how can we target them and get rid of them? Get rid of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was that was the process. It was, you know, get, you know, target and eliminate any group that might possibly oppose you and you know it was getting rid of political opponents and controlling the lives of women because if you control women that's 50% of the population right there and then you know eliminating you know then making scapegoats and targeting them and so it was just a steady one by one those targets were taken out until it was almost too late. But even though I say almost too late because for Mildred and Greta and Martha and Arvid and the other members of their network and other networks throughout Germany, they never thought it was too late. They right. were going to fight until, until the bitter end. end. Yeah.
0: Yes. yeah, well, you totally capture that that fight in the novel. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Jennifer Chiaverini, author of Resistance Women, which is out now. You can find out more about
1: jennifer's book at our website bookclubgirl.com coming up on the book club girl podcast we asked jennifer about her literary white whale stick around this episode of the book club girl podcast is brought to you by all the ways we said goodbye by beatrice williams lauren willig and karen white the fates of three remarkable women intersect across two world wars and the 1960s as each finds refuge at the legendary Ritz Hotel in Paris. All the ways we said goodbye, available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show.
0: Each week we bring you a new fascinating conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, author Jennifer Chiaverini is here with us answering questions from our listeners.
1: Each episode we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? It's a book they've either always meant to read or when they started reading and never finished. Jennifer, what is your literary white whale?
2: Oh, boy. I have had this wonderful biography of Shakespeare, Will in the World. And it was it was a finalist for the National Book Award. I read all kinds... When it was coming out, I read all kinds of wonderful reviews, and I just could not wait to get this book. And I put it on my Christmas list, and my wonderful brother got it for me, <laughs> and I was so excited when I received it. And... I still have not gotten around—this was a few years ago—and I still have not gotten around to reading that book because, you know, so many books, so little time, you know. I'm always reading—there's so much wonderful historical fiction out there that I have to devour. And then I do a lot of research reading uh, of nonfiction and primary sources— for my own books, that I have not gotten around to reading this wonderful book that I have been anticipating for so many years now. But <laughs> I have, I, I, I have not
0: read that one either. I would really like to, though. I don't think I've ever read a biography of
2: Shakespeare. And I remember, Jennifer, when this book came when out, when that book was published. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it, I mean, Finalist for the National Book Award. Yeah, right. That is pretty high praise. So I am That's a good going one. to get to it. I'm going to read it. I, I'm looking forward to reading it. It's just a matter of fitting it in my to-be-read schedule. And Jennifer,
0: can we ask you to tell our listeners um, what your next book will be? Oh, boy.
2: I'm working on another historical novel. Yay! Yay! I just love historical fiction. Me too. And I'm hoping that it will especially appeal to readers who enjoyed my book, Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker. Oh, yes. I I explored a very important relationship in Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln's life in that novel. And in my next book, I'm exploring some other very important relationships. The book is called Mrs. Lincoln's Sisters. Oh, and it talks about, you know, she had a lot of sisters and half-sisters. And, you know, we always hear about how the Civil War pitted brother against brother. Well, really, entire families were divided very often by the war. And in the Todd family, this is particularly true because some of Mary, Mary Todd Lincoln's siblings were on the side of the Union. And many others were on the side of the Confederacy. Jennifer, that sounds amazing. Oh, I can't I wait to read, read it. it. Absolutely. I hope you'll read it. Absolutely. I hope you'll read it, and I hope you love it. And it's coming out in June 2020. Awesome. Oh, fantastic. Great.
0: Closer Je- than we think. Yes. Very yes, soon.
2: it'll be here before you know it. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on
0: the podcast. Thank you. That was Jennifer Chiaverini, whose book, Resistance Women, is out now. To find out more about Jennifer's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this
1: episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. We might just read it on the show. Another
0: way to help spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps others to find us.
1: You'll hear from us again in two weeks, and we'll be speaking with Tara Conklin, the author of The Last Romantic. Yay! I loved I that book. Oh my God. Oh so my great. God. I can't even.
0: You can join that conversation. If you've read The Last Romantics and you have a question for Tara, post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group, or you can call me and Tavia at 212-207-7336 and leave us a voicemail, or you could send us an email, bookclubgirl.com. We would really love to hear from you.
1: And before we go, a big thank you to Jordan goss Perey, who produced today's episode, to Molly Waxman, who shook all the trees for resistance women, to Rachel Kahn, a resistance woman in her own right, and to our terrific engineers, Violet Furtin and Audrey Martinovich. Thanks
0: for listening. And until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading.
3: The presence of the National Socialist German Students Association steadily transformed the character of the Berlin Gymnasium. Although Mildred fought to keep the group's influence out of her classroom, she could not avoid the placards posted in the hallways, listing their 12 theses for restoring the purity of German language and literature. Most were demands to purge German culture of Jewish intellectualism and get back the pure and unadulterated expression of its folk traditions. Our most dangerous enemy is the Jew and those who are his slaves the fourth thesis shrilled. And the fifth began, a Jew can only think Jewish. If he writes in German, he is lying. There was no logic to the twelfth theses, only hatred and rage. And it sickened Mildred to see students reading the placards and discussing them earnestly, as if they were truths meriting intellectual inquiry, rather than so much garbage interlaced with invective. Her heart ached to see some of her own students eagerly preparing for the action against the un-German spirit called for by the association's main office for press and propaganda. Chapters were encouraged to compile blacklists of degenerate authors, write articles denouncing the Jewish influence on German literary culture, and submit the documents to their local press and radio. Their publicity campaign would culminate on May 10th in a vast, nationwide Zeuberung, a literary cleansing by fire. As twilight descended that fateful night, Mildred stood at the cupola windows, watching lights come on in windows up and down Hasenheide. Arvid found her there and gently embraced her from behind. We don't have to go, he said, gazing over her shoulder to the scene outside. Imagining it is bad enough. You don't have to watch it happen. No, I do. Mildred inhaled deeply, turned in the circle of his arms, and kissed him. I have to see with my own eyes just how desperate things have become. Or I won't believe it. Pulling on a warm sweater to fend off the cool spring night, she followed Arvid downstairs and outside, where the sweet aromas of Kuchen and vanilla still wafted from the pâtisserie, though it had closed hours before. She took Arvid's hand as they walked quickly to the University of Berlin, where his cousin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, waited for them outside his office building. The students have been building the pyre for four days, he said as they walked toward the open platz, where thousands of students, citizens, and a few professors in robes and caps milled about, jittery with anticipation. They started by emptying the entire library of the Institut für Sexualwissenschaft. And since then, countless other books have followed, Works by Freud, Einstein, Mann. Dietrich broke off at the sound of shouts and cheers and singing. As they turned to look down the street, Mildred's heart sank at the sight of the familiar flickering red glare, lighting up the elegant buildings along Unter der Linden. Yet another parade, muttered Arvid, taking Mildred's hand, his gaze fixed on the approaching marchers. More torches. But this time, The torches that light their way will also plunge them into darkness, said Dietrich quietly. The darkness of intolerance and ignorance, more dangerous than the darkest night. Students, S.A., S.S., Hitler youth, toward the open plots they marched, row after row of them, their faces sinister in the garish light. In their arms were books seized from school libraries, from bookshops, from shelves in homes where Mildred imagined bewildered parents lamenting the strange fanaticism that had transformed their beloved children into frightening strangers. A thunderous roar of voices drew her attention back to the square, where torches were flung upon the pile of books, smoldering, smoking, rising into flame. As the marchers approached the pyre to throw more books onto the blaze, Mildred felt a cold, sickening shiver run up her spine as tens of thousands of voices began chanting a litany of fire oaths. First, the offense against German language and literature. Next, what must succeed it? And last, the author to be consigned to oblivion. Against class struggle and materialism, they chanted. For national community and an idealistic way of life. Marx and Kotsky. An ear-splitting roar followed as the men's books were thrown onto the pyre. Against decadence and moral decay, for discipline and decency in family and state, Mann, Glicia, and Kessner. The acrid smoke stung Mildred's eyes, and her breath caught in her throat. So many works by authors she respected and admired, whose brilliant words she taught to her students. Erich Remark's autobiographical novel of the Great War all quiet on the Western Front. Works by Theodore Wolff and Georg Bernhardt. For their corrupting foreign influence, Ernest Hemingway and Jack London. For pacifism, for advocating for the disabled, for seeking better conditions for workers' and women's rights, Helen Keller. Reich Minister of Propaganda, Josef Goebbels, addressed the crowd from a podium draped with a swastika banner. His usually resonant tenor, raspy from smoke or overuse, The era of extreme Jewish intellectualism has come to an end, and the German Revolution has again opened the way for the true essence of being German, he declaimed, each word precisely enunciated. Over the past fourteen years, you students have had to suffer in silent shame the humiliations of the Weimar Republic, Your libraries were inundated with the trash and filth of Jewish literati. The old past lies in flames. The new times will arise from the flame that burns in our hearts. On and on he went, stirring the crowd into a frenzy of exultant anger. Clasping Arvid's hand so tightly her fingers ached, Mildred watched, horrified and dismayed, as the most cherished works of some of the world's most celebrated authors turned to ash and smoke, then a jolt of recognition so sharp it left her breathless. Among the marchers, clad in S.A. Brown, one of her former students filed past, not two feet from where she stood. His gaze fixed ardently upon the towering pyre. He did not recognize her, but she knew him, and she knew the book tucked under his arm a collection of plays by the renowned 19th century poet, Heinrich Heine, a German Jew. As she watched him march off to destroy the book, Mildred knew that at universities throughout Germany, other disgruntled, angry, vengeful students were destroying the very books that could teach them that this was wrong, that this would create nothing but ash and loss. It would not bring them joy, or find them work, or fill their bellies. It would erase the wisdom that resonated from the author's mind to the reader's heart. As flame and smoke rose to the sky, a line from Heine's play, *Almansor* drifted into her thoughts. Dort, wo man Bucher verbrennt, verbrennt man am end auch Menschen. Where they burn books, in the end they will also burn people.